This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. If you could burn every stress ball, would you? Don't even call them stress balls. Let's just call them like fun balls to play with in your hand. Squeezy ball. <laughs> Squeezy <laughs> Fun balls and squeezy balls. Yeah, that would let's let's start marketing that to elementary schools. Lynn Lyons introduces her line of fun squeezy balls. They come in different sizes for all different for all different size hands. Yeah. Welcome to Fluster Clucks with Lynn Lyons, where we talk about a family's anxiety and other big feelings. Serious stuff without being too serious. I'm your co-host Robin, and I'm Lynn's sister-in-law, and I'm here to ask your questions. And I'm Lynn Lyons. I'm an anxiety expert, speaker, mom, and author, and I've been a therapist for over 30 years. Parenting can be a Fluster Clucks, and I'm here to help you find your way, and I'll even tell you what to say. So Lynn, it's a new year. I have been going through the listener survey that many wonderful listeners willingly gave us some feedback. And we have a lot of new listeners. And I thought it might be a nice time to just tell us a little bit more about you and your approach and who you think this podcast is meant for. Yeah. Hi, everybody. If you're new-ish to the podcast... Families and anxiety is my thing. I specialize in anxiety. I talk about anxiety. I write about anxiety. I feel anxiety. Yeah, so anxiety is my <laughs> thing. I've been doing it for a long time. I treat a lot of kids, a lot of teenagers, a lot of families. I treat a lot of depression too, just because anxiety and depression hang out together so much. Yeah, so that's what I do. I've been in practice for over 30 years now. I take a very family-oriented approach. For years, I've been talking about the importance of prevention. For decades, I've been talking about how important it is to include parents in treatment. And I have always said that it makes no sense to me that you would work with an 8-year-old or a 6-year-old or a 12-year-old or even a 14-year-old or sometimes even an 18-year-old and not have the parents involved in it. So what I talk about on the podcast is really what I talk about in my office when I'm giving information about how this thing works. I'm very concrete. I'm very skill-based. There are a few overarching principles that really guide my work, and I talk about those on the podcast all the time, the importance of staying out of the content, the need for flexibility, the need for parents to own their own stuff. You've got to recognize how you're teaching your kids these patterns, not on purpose. It's just what human beings do. So very much talking about how this worry thing works and how we interrupt the patterns that are just so, so common. Let me ask you this too, because I know just on listener feedback and what I've learned from you that what you do isn't often what other therapists are saying. How would you differentiate your approach compared to what might be what many families have encountered with other mental health professionals? People say to me all the time, I need coping strategies, or they say, I need tools in the toolbox. 
And what that often means and what a lot of families are taught are a bunch of these techniques or a bunch of these things to do to help get rid of worry, to help get rid of anxiety. So an example might be, so we're going to focus on breathing and breathing is great. I'm not against breathing, but this idea that I need to teach you this menu of techniques in order to manage worry when it shows up, and a lot of them are focused on getting rid of it, I really take a much bigger 30,000-foot approach where we're looking at how worry works, and it's not about getting rid of anything. It's about understanding how it works. So you will not hear me talk about, here's a stress ball, or we're going to offer them reassurance, or we're going to make sure they know exactly what's going to happen. Those kind of in-the-moment things that parents want, but they're band-aids and they don't really help change the larger and very predictable pattern of worry when it shows up. Well, you always say you can't get rid of worry. Mm -hmm. We're there to manage it. And it's just like you can't get rid of anger or sadness either. Right. It shows up a lot in the mental health field. You'll hear people talk about You know, you have to get rid of your anger or anger management. People think that that means we have to get rid of it. We do the same thing with grief, right? Like one of the things that drives me crazy, and I'm not the only one who says this, is when people talk about closure. So there's been this horrible loss that somebody's had. And so now the family has closure. And I'm thinking to myself, no, they don't. What does closure mean? We so want people to not feel things. We so want to get rid of these uncomfortable feelings. We so want to take a pill and get rid of it. And really, it's okay to have all these feelings because we're going to have them anyway, right? You're going to have them anyway. So how do we manage them? How do we deal with them? How do we talk about worry and sadness and anger so that it's not about making everything okay? It's about saying you're going to have these feelings and how do they not control us? How do they not impair you in some way that keeps you from living your life? That's really the the message that I have about worry and about all sorts of feelings. So I want to ask you, when you've got tweens and teens who are really resistant to showing up and working with their parents and working with you on managing their anxiety, I know that happens a lot. Mm -hmm. How do you get everyone on the same team when the kids and the teens are dragging their heels? Yeah, and sometimes they're more than dragging their heels. To use a Southern expression that I learned from my pal Reed, when they're on all fours. I don't think that's the expression. (laughs) I don't think so. (laughs) Let me try that again. Putting down all fours. Okay. (laughs) That could go in the blooper reel. (laughs) Sometimes it's more than dragging their feet. Sometimes they're really just digging in and flat out refusing. There's a few things that we need to recognize about this. And I'll say what I say very frequently. The earlier, the better, but it's never too late. People ask me questions. They say, this has been a problem for a long time, but my child was really resistant to talking to anybody for a while. But now that they're 16 or 17, it's really a problem. So my first piece of advice is that if you see this as a problem, and if your child is six or seven or eight or nine or 10, and they're saying, no, I don't want to go talk to somebody, don't put them in charge of it. Don't say, okay, well, we'll just wait seven years until they can't go to college or we'll wait a long time. 
it's really okay to get started early. So here's a few things that I say. One is that there are a lot of things that parents can do on their own. If you've got a child who's really resistant, if you've got a child who is saying, or a teenager who is saying, there is absolutely no way that I'm going to therapy, I'm not going to talk to anybody, and you really feel like you can't make headway with that, it is still important for you as a parent to go and talk to somebody. You can get some advice. There are a lot of books that you can read. There are a lot of resources. But I would say go talk to somebody about it. In fact, that just happened to me right before I went on my Christmas break. A mom came to see me because her young adult son was refusing to talk to anybody. And she said, can I come in and talk to you about what the next steps might be or what I can do to help? So that's absolutely an option when your kids are any age, and it's a very viable option that you should take. I've heard this now twice, where like a tween or a teen says, stop Lynn Lyonsing me. <laughs> like, yes. So like when a parent brings up something, let's talk about flexibility. And the kids know you've just read Anxious Kids, Anxious Parents. <laughs> yeah. And the parents are like licking their pencil, ready to take notes. And then they hit this wall with a kid who's like, not playing. Yeah, I have this family where there's a few kids. So the mom comes to see me. They know <laughs> when she comes to see me, they go home, she goes home and then she talks to them about something and, and they go like, oh my God, did you just go talk to Lynn? Because that totally sounds like something she would say. You would never say that. Here's the thing. If they say, don't Lynn Lyons me, I have a lot of videos on my website and on Facebook and stuff. Just have them watch a video. And I don't care if it's of me or of something else. This is just another way to get kids engaged. There's this really great video of Bill Hader talking about his anxiety and what he did. There are great TED Talks out there so that they hear people talk about it. One of the reasons that kids don't want to engage in it or don't want to deal with it is because they don't know what it's going to be like. And they have these impressions that it's going to be really uncomfortable, which it could be, that it's going to be really awkward, that the person who they go to see is going to be this really weird therapisty person that's going to say things like, so tell me more about that. There are a lot of therapists that work with kids that are just really great, funny, down-to-earth human beings. And in fact, people that work with adolescents, that specialize in adolescence, know that you can't be this weird, off-putting, bizarre human being. They're really relatable people. So get your kids to watch some videos to learn about what therapy is because they have some ideas about it that are usually inaccurate. Get them sort of curious about the process and dispel a lot of the myths about it so that it doesn't seem so weird to them. Normalize, normalize, normalize. You brought up a family in your own practice a minute ago where the kids won't go and the mom goes by herself to come and see you. Mm -hmm. And the dad comes sometimes, the grandmother comes sometimes. Yeah. What kind of change can you expect when it's mostly parent-driven for the family? Like if the kids aren't going to be there, can you still expect some progress? Yeah. So the progress that we really work on, and this is the case where I'm working with any parents where the child is not participating, I'm really working on the parent changing their reactions. I'm really helping the parent respond in a different way 
to when the child refuses to do something or when the child has a blow up or when the child has a meltdown. It's almost like I'm the Cyrano de Bergerac therapist in the parent's ear telling them what to say and telling them how to respond when those situations happen so that they can manage it on their own. And I do that a lot anyway. Sometimes the kids are in the room and sometimes they're not. But that's a huge part of what I do is really helping parents respond and react differently. And also, I really want the parents to identify their own patterns of anxiety so that they're not modeling it for their kid. But a lot of times parents are worried that they're going to say the wrong thing, that they're going to do the wrong thing. A lot of times parents say to me, well, I don't know when I should push or I don't know when I should say this. And so if a child is not willing to engage, it's really okay for the parents to go to therapy and to even to say very openly to their child, like say they've got a teenager that really won't engage, that's really disconnected, that's shutting them out. It's really okay for a parent to say to a child, I understand that you don't want to engage in this process. I respect that. Here are some things. I'd like you to watch this video. I'd like you to watch this TED Talk. I'm going to go talk to somebody because I think there's a lot that I can learn. Sometimes I say to parents, say when you come back, there's this interesting thing that I learned from this therapist, Lynn, that I was talking to, and I think you might be interested. And so she gave me this article for you to read, or she told me to tell you this. And so it's really just a way of letting the teenager know, if we're talking about a teenager, that you're engaged and that you're actively trying to help and that you're actively trying to figure out what you need to do differently. Teenagers pay attention to that for sure. Yeah. The thing you don't want to do, say you've got a teenager who you know is really anxious and who's avoiding things and they refuse to go get help. You don't want to say to them, well, you know what? If you're not going to do anything, then there's nothing I can do. You don't want to take that approach of like, well, if you're not going to do anything, I'm not going to do anything. Guess what will happen? Nothing. You really want to see what you can learn about this. It's really, really helpful. It's sort of like the Al-Anon model. If you've got a family member who's struggling with addiction and there are things that you need to learn, things that are helpful and things that are not helpful, it's sort of that same model that we can really help parents figure out what works and what doesn't work and to stay present with their child, to really stay connected and to stay present. That's what we want. Robin and I travel a lot. And part of traveling is that you learn that you have to compromise, right? So maybe you're not going to get the best seat on the plane. Well, you know where you shouldn't compromise? You shouldn't compromise with your health care. When it comes to your health, there's no compromising, everybody. Don't go back to that one doctor who didn't really pay attention to you, who rushed you through your appointments. Check out ZocDoc. This is the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. And you can search by location, availability, insurance. So literally no compromises here. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. Once you find the doc you want, you can book them immediately. You don't have to wait. You don't have to be on hold with a receptionist. These doctors all have verified reviews from real 
patients. So the typical wait time to see a doctor booked on ZocDoc is just between 24 and 72 hours. That's it. You can even score same-day appointments. I have two young adult sons. They are always needing something, right? We've had broken elbows. We've had tonsils. We've had this. We've had that. If I were a young person, if I were a parent trying to help my young person find a doctor, this is what I would use. So Go to ZocDoc.com slash Fluster and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash Fluster. ZocDoc.com slash Fluster. Picture the thing that you've always wanted to learn, and now picture that you're learning it from the person who's literally the best in the world at it. It's fantastic, and that's what you get with Masterclass. I recently listened to Matthew Walker's talk on sleep and the importance of consistency with sleep. I loved Bobby Brown's Masterclass, gave me all these tips about putting on makeup because, you know, I'm in front of a camera sometimes and I want to look good, and Bobby was such a big help. So this year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Don't just talk about improving. Masterclass actually helps you do it. Like I actually put on makeup the way that Bobby Brown taught me how to put on makeup. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Don't just talk about improving. Masterclass actually helps you do it. Masterclass offers over 180 instructors. So whether you want to master negotiation with Chris Voss, think like a boss with Martha Stewart, or maybe you want to learn how to just make your makeup look better with Bobby Brown or sleep better with Matthew Walker, with Masterclass, you get unlimited access to intimate one-on-one classes with the world's best. I loved it. There are over 200 classes to pick from. New classes are added every single month, like a class that talks about your gut health. So many interesting things to learn. So every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's absolutely no risk. Right now, our listeners will get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash Fluster. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash fluster. Masterclass.com slash fluster. For the listeners who are somewhat new, they might not understand how parent focused your approach is. They may question what's the value in them going to therapy by themselves if they're trying to help their kid. Maybe you could unpack that a bit more. We know that these things run in families, and this is not to blame, of course, but it really is looking at how patterns get passed down generationally and recognizing above all else that we're social creatures. Lots of times patterns get put in place in families over time, and the reason they get put in place is because in the short term they work. You know, anxiety loves avoidance, so you're trying to help your child avoid things or you're trying to get them into school so you might be saying, okay, well, in order to get you into school, we need to set it up so you know everything that's going to happen. And what is really helpful for parents is to be able to recognize how their patterns and how the family dance is sort of working for this anxiety disorder. And so what can we do differently? So that's why it's really important to have parents involved because 
parents are really just trying to do what they think in the moment will work. And a lot of those things in the moment do work. But unfortunately, it's what I call doing the disorder. We want the parents to be involved so that they can really step back and see what are the family patterns and then how can they respond differently to their kids. Have you ever had a family where the child was or the teen was really suffering from anxiety and the parents demonstrated no modeling of any behaviors that promoted and strengthened anxiety? No. Right. And let me say this, like, say even you've got a parent that's not really the anxious parent, and so they're not showing the child how to be anxious, they're still reacting in a way that supports the anxious patterns. And that happens in schools all the time too, right? So say you've got a little second grader who's anxious in school, and the teacher herself isn't anxious, but she's trying to respond to the anxiety in a way that makes the anxiety stronger. So even non-anxious parents can sort of feed into the anxiety, not having the anxiety themselves. But it's, it's very, very uncommon for me to see a family where we've got a really anxious kid and we've got both parents that are not showing any anxiety. That's really uncommon. Lots of times parents come in, they don't really see themselves as anxious, right? They don't have an anxiety disorder per se. They're functioning in the world and they're doing okay. But they've lived their lives sort of with these anxious patterns that they're showing their child how to do. And that's what we want to interrupt. We can really just take away like this whole idea of where does the anxiety come from and who's the identified patient and all that kind of stuff. To me, it really is just very non-dramatically saying like anxiety is super common and it's a part of being a human being and our brains are set up to have these fight or flight responses, et cetera, et cetera. So let's just figure out how we can minimize these patterns in a way that can help everybody move in the right direction. There can be a family where there's one child who's really anxious and another child who's really laid back. There's temperament, there's environment, there's what school they go to. It has a lot to do with social factors. So do you have a child that's really good at making connections or do you have a child that struggles with that? All of those things can really predict whether this thing really moves into a place where it becomes much more problematic for sure. If you've got littler kids and they're worried about coming into therapy, one of the things that you want to talk to the therapist about or talk to whoever you're working with is that it really is okay for the parent to stay in the room. Because a lot of times parents even are worried that they think, well, I've got this really anxious child, so I've got to go drop them off at this therapist's office and just leave them there. That's very scary for kids and it's very scary for parents too. There are a lot of therapists who see kids alone. Again, I'm not a fan of that in general because parents are so important and so helpful. You know, you really want to talk to your child. If they're resistant to going to therapy, you want to ask them what are their ideas about therapy? What is it that they think is going to happen? What are they afraid of or what are they nervous about? The other thing, too, you want to say to a child who's going into therapy, particularly if they're anxious, if they tend to be shy, if they tend to be more introverted. I've worked with families where they said, well, we took him to another therapist. He's really shy. He's really anxious. He has a really hard time talking to people. And the therapist said they couldn't do anything because the child wouldn't talk. I'm like, well, but that's why you're bringing him to the, like to expect the kid to be able to talk when the problem is they have trouble talking to me is silly. So being able to say to your child and asking a therapist about this, if somebody doesn't talk in my office, I don't sit there and say, well, they're not talking. I guess I can't help. That's part of the issue. 
I mean, can anybody model how to talk better than me? Probably not. I can talk. So I, I can fill the time. We do all sorts of things. Just dispelling some of the rumors or some of the fears or some of the misconceptions about therapy, I think is really, really helpful. I thought we might get specific because I wanted to read you a listener question that someone submitted. Okay. What do you do when your child won't acknowledge their worry? My daughter says she doesn't have any worries. There's nothing bothering her. Everything's fine. But she's always asking for reassurance relating to health and sickness. Is it okay to eat this? Have you washed your hands? Was everyone wearing a mask, etc.? She asks these things a thousand times. Plus, she often talks about her goal being not to catch COVID. I understand that to an extent. And a worry about illness is rational at the moment. But... How do I help her pull out of her worry, separate it, and personify it if she can't see it as separate to herself? It is a long-held habit since even before COVID, and it is totally normal part of her and her role in our family. You won't be surprised to hear that she also does a lot of hand-washing. At first, everyone noticed it and talked about OCD, and people have told me not to mention it to her, and it would stop, but it is an ingrained habit now, and it's been reinforced and normalized by COVID. Help. I wonder who those people were that told her to ignore it and not mention it. So this is a really good question. One of the things that strikes me about this question is that this young person who is definitely doing some worry thing, right? We've talked about seeking reassurance. So she has to ask the question. Remember, anxiety is seeking certainty and comfort. And she will not experience it as distressful or even as a problem if the anxiety is getting what it wants. If she asks these questions a thousand times a day, and if in responding to that, the anxiety is getting what it wants, then she's fine. Say, for example, that you are really afraid of spiders, and every night your family joined together and you did a mass cleaning out of any possible spiders in the house, then the person might say, well, this isn't really a problem because everybody's really good at getting rid of the spiders and I never really feel anxious because I know every night the family is going to do the sweep and get rid of all the spiders. I would wonder with this girl, if the parents stopped giving the reassurance, if they stopped answering the questions, if they pointed out to her and started to educate her about the fact that she needs certainty in order to move forward, and they stopped working for the anxiety, I bet that everything wouldn't be so fine. I bet that things would start to be more of a problem because she wouldn't be getting what she wanted. First step with this would be to really help her look at the behaviors that she does that she's seeking certainty. And what this family has done is it's become kind of her identity. So everybody knows that Amanda asks about this. I'm making up the name Amanda. She seeks reassurance and everybody, oh, we're going to have to let Amanda wash her hands. I'm sure that the amount of accommodating and reassuring is pretty constant. And if they stop doing that, then Amanda would start to feel uncomfortable. So she doesn't notice it now because everybody's accommodating it so much. COVID, of course, anybody that had worries about sickness or germs, contamination during COVID, it absolutely was amplified and also justified. So I've talked about this a lot. How do we help adults and children differentiate between what are the reasonable precautions that we need to take for COVID 
and what are the ways in which this behavioral pattern has been around for a very long time and will probably continue after COVID. Now she's just got more grist for the mill, right? Because COVID will probably always be around. Really looking and talking to this young girl and saying, you know, we really, we really are kind of held hostage by all the things that your worry wants us to do. What would happen if we stopped doing them? And then see what the response to that would be. What would you guess the response would be? Um, freak out. I think she'd freak out. If she started saying like, is it okay to eat this? And if the mom said, that's a decision you have to make, I don't think the girl would say, okay. I think she would say like, you just need to tell me, like, why are you not telling me? And I think they would see a ramp up in her behaviors. She probably does a lot of checking. If they said, you're allowed to wash your hands after you use the bathroom and right before we eat. And other than that, you can't wash your hands. I think she would get incredibly distressed. I had a family where there was, this was before COVID, where the child was very concerned about germs. And so what they did is they put this huge like five gallon hand sanitizer in the classroom so that every time she walked by, she could sanitize her hands. And they all thought that was such a great solution. And I said, if you removed that, she is going to freak out because her worry is demanding this as an accommodation. So you have to do the pre-work first. There has to be some discussion. The reason this girl is saying, I don't have any worries, things are fine. It's because everyone's accommodating her. Yeah, everybody's accommodating her. So when, the, when she says, is this okay to eat? And the mom decides not to play the game anymore and says, you have to figure that out for yourself. And then she freaks out. Mm -hmm. What's the meta point that that mom needs to keep saying? Or what's the mantra for the mom to say to the daughter? Great question. But first of all, there has to be the pre-talk. There has to be the front loading so that they know that they're going to change this up. So that they know that something different is going to happen. And then what the mom has to keep in mind and keep reminding her daughter is your anxiety is making up rules that it wants you to follow and it wants us to follow. And I'm not going to follow these rules anymore. They want to just keep talking about how anxiety is bossy, how anxiety comes in, how anxiety makes these rules, and we're not playing anymore. The daughter's going to fight back. She's going to say, yeah, but of course you want to know if food is healthy to eat. Of course you want to get rid of germs. Of course I don't want to get COVID. Of course I don't want to get sick. What, do you want me to get sick? You want me to get COVID? She's going to try all these things to try and get the family to go back into this pattern of making sure that everything is certain. And this is the hard part about it because this little girl hasn't really learned how to figure out reasonable risk and hasn't learned how to tolerate reasonable risk. When I go into the refrigerator to get the cream out to put in my coffee, if it's been sitting there for a while, I open it up and I sniff it to make sure that it's not sour. But I don't then turn to my husband and say, are you sure this cream isn't sour? Are you sure this cream is okay? Can you taste this cream? Is it okay? I do a little check because it's reasonable if the cream's been sitting there for a while to do a check. So when you look at these behaviors of checking and asking and seeking reassurance and doing things over and over again, they know that this is not normal behavior, as I make finger quotes, because the whole family has to abide by it or else there's going to be a problem. And it's become her identity. And they're like, oh, this is just what we have to do. And I think they want to say, we're not going to keep doing this anymore. Mm -hmm. And if we take it out of the context of this, right, this is just the content. If I give another example of this, 
say you had a person who demanded that everybody sleep in one room, right? We've talked about a lot of sleep issues, but the whole family has to sleep in one room. And everybody would say, all right, I guess every night this is what we have to do. Come on, everybody, get your pillowcases, get your sleeping bags. All six of us are going to sleep in the same room every night because dad wants us to all sleep in the same room. At some point, people would be like, really, we have to do this? That's kind of where you have to get with this. Because maybe other kids in the family are already saying, really, we have to do this? And you have to bring it out into the light. You have to bring it out into the open and you have to call it what it is and stop pretending this is just some quirky thing that she does that we all have to play along with. Because it'll just keep growing and expanding. Yep. It'll just keep growing and expanding. And I tell families a lot that if you accommodate this, then you start to expect other people to accommodate it. You start to expect schools to accommodate it. You start to expect your employers to accommodate it. Then suddenly you've got this person, and we've got a lot of them right now, who say, this is what I need and everybody has to make sure I have it because I can't handle not having the certainty and comfort that my anxiety demands. So all of you have to make sure I get what I want. If you are a mom who's trying to keep your calendar organized, keep your family's appointments where they need to be, then I'll tell you, the Skylight Calendar is a product that you ought to check out. You know how it is. Running a household can be pure chaos and it can be so stressful. This is why you need to check out the Skylight Calendar. It is going to make your life easier, mom. It really is. The Skylight Calendar is a smart touchscreen calendar and organizer for all your chores, groceries, to-do lists and a great way to manage appointments to make sure they never overlap and they're never missed. It helps keep busy households on track so families can get time back for moments that really matter. The Skylight Calendar is so easy to use and to set up. It's not going to frustrate you. You're going to be able to get it going within minutes. It syncs events from other family calendars, including Google, Apple, Outlook, you can add events directly using the touchscreen or with the free Skylight mobile app. Updates to linked calendars will automatically appear on the Skylight calendar at home. So no more worrying that you guys are going to forget something. No more cluttered paper calendars. It shows all family events together in one spot. The events are color-coded so you can easily see what everyone has going on each week. When the calendar's not in use, you can turn it into a digital picture frame. It's 100% satisfaction guaranteed. If you don't love the Skylight calendar, you'll receive a full refund. They offer a 120-day money-back guarantee and free returns. You can't beat it. I think the feature that I love most is the collaborative way we can all add to the grocery list. And then when I'm ready to place an online order, whether I'm at home or my office, I have that list and there's no more items that we forget. So as a special time-limited offer for our listeners, get 15% off your purchase of a Skylight calendar when you go to skylightcal.com slash flusterclucks. That's S-K-Y-L-I-G-H-T-C-A-L dot com slash flusterclucks. Mother's Day is coming right up. So order today to get 15% off your purchase at skylightcal.com slash flusterclucks. 
Lumen is the world's first handheld metabolic coach. It's a device that measures your metabolism through your breath, and on the app, it lets you know if you are burning fat or carbs, and it gives you a tailored guidance to improve your nutrition, workouts, sleep, and even stress management. So how Lumen works is that you breathe into the Lumen device first thing in the morning, and you'll know what's going on with your metabolism, whether you're burning mostly fat or carbs. And then Lumen gives you a personalized nutrition plan for that day based on your measurements. You can also breathe into it before and after workouts and meals, so you know exactly what's going on in your body in real time. And Lumen will give you tips to keep you on top of your health game. I love the extra data that I'm getting about my health right now. Because for many women of my age, as we are going through a long chapter of hormone changes, Lumen's helping me use my body's data to make the best choices. So your metabolism is your body's engine. It's how your body turns the food you eat into the fuel that keeps you going. And because your metabolism is at the center of everything your body does, optimal metabolic health translates to a bunch of benefits, including easier weight management, improved energy levels, and better sleep, which is key. So Lumen gives you recommendations to improve your metabolic health. So What is metabolic flexibility and why should you care? Well, the key to metabolic health is something called metabolic flexibility. We love flexibility at Fluster Clucks, and that's where Lumen really shines. It refers to your body's ability to efficiently switch between using different fuel sources like carbs and fats, and there are preferred times to use each, and how well you can switch places you on the metabolic flexibility spectrum. So after getting to know you through your breath, Lumen gives you a metabolic flex score that you can track and improve upon. So if you want to take the next step in improving your health, go to lumen.me and use Fluster to get $100 off Lumen. That's L-U-M-E-N-D-O-T-M-E. And use Fluster at checkout for $100 off. Thank you, Lumen, for sponsoring this episode. So the front loading is this child maybe gives her worry and her need for this kind of certainty a name. Let's say it's Martha. Yeah. When the mom is at the sink and the daughter's like, can I eat this? Is this safe? It's I think of it like a parasite in a way, because it's like we've been feeding Martha a lot of square meals a day and she's very healthy. It's time to starve Martha Mm -hmm. and get her to go away. And so then it's like the mom can say, like, we're starving, Martha. We're not feeding Martha right now. Right. And Martha is this big cult leader who demands certainty from everybody else that she has made her family comply with. Right. The girl is on Martha's team. When you say we're going to starve Martha, then the host of the parasite (laughs) doesn't say, okay, good idea. Yeah. Yay. Yeah. It's like the begging dog. It's like tricky woo in All Creatures Great and Small, if you've ever watched All Creatures Great and Small. It doesn't happen in one conversation. It doesn't happen when you say, we're no longer going to participate in this. The person doesn't say like, oh, thank you for your help. Say the mom says, okay, so we're going to personify this. We're going to personify this worry. We're going to name it Martha. And the girl says, I don't have any worry. What are you talking about? I don't, I'm, I don't have to personify this thing as Martha. I'm not anxious. Everything's fine. And then you say, everything is fine as long as we give Martha what it wants. So we don't even have to talk about Martha as a worry or as an anxiety. We can talk about Martha 
as a bossy rule demander and that I'm not going to obey Martha's rules. And that way, then you begin to separate the girl from the problem. You begin to externalize the worry by saying, this is a part of you that makes up these rules that we have to follow. When we talk about OCD, I say all the time to kids, does it feel like your brain makes up rules that you have to follow and that other people have to follow? And what will happen if we don't follow those rules? That's where the distress comes out. And sometimes that's a really good way to get kids to see that, yeah, this kind of is a problem because everything is fine if you follow the rules. This is a conversation you can have, and it's a conversation that should happen because right now everybody's playing along with Martha. Is it smooth and easy? And does everybody say, wow, that's so helpful? Nope. Mm -mm. As you say this, when I think of the recent episodes we did where you actually had a a consultation with one of the listeners. And when I say this phrase, I'm trying to unpack all of our inside phrases. But if the parent is caught in the content, meaning the parent is still kind of doing what the anxiety wants and isn't recognizing that anxiety is asking for this, not their daughter. Like if the parent can't see Martha, Mm -hmm. then that's going to be a learning curve that the parent has to understand because this has gotten so normalized. Exactly. And I think based on this person's question, I think this mom really does see Martha. And the question is, how does she get her daughter to see Martha? The way she's going to get her daughter to see Martha is to stop working for Martha. That'll make it apparent in a hurry. It's a learning process for parents, too, because they get sucked in all the time. There are families that I work with for a really long time, and they say, oh, I totally got sucked into the content of that, which means that there was another worry that showed up. It's the same church, different pew. It's just sometimes it feels different. So they say, oh, I have to respond to this in a different way. Nope, same thing. You know, that's what people are saying, like, well, it's COVID. They're responding to this because it's COVID. And I go, oh, was it happening before? Or people will say to me, oh, well, it all started when? And then I get the history and it didn't all start when. That content started when they were 10 or started when they were 14. But it really started before that. The process is the same. The content just may switch around a little bit. Just to say that in another way, here's this girl who a lot of her content is COVID. And so let's say COVID started when she was 12 years old. Mm -hmm. So COVID is the content. But if you had met her at eight, she was very nervous to throw up or very nervous about getting a headache. And so there was Mm -hmm. the same process of worry, or she was very worried about thunderstorms, right? It doesn't always have to be in her body. If you could like wave a wand, like to make everyone advance in their ability to manage anxiety, I think the wand you would wave would make everyone really understand the difference between the content and the worry process. Right. Content is what you worry about. Process is how worry works. And how worry works, how this anxiety thing shows up, same over and over and over again, content can jump around. Sometimes it might stick to the same theme. Like if you have somebody who's afraid of COVID, before COVID, they were afraid of getting the flu or they were afraid of getting a headache or they're afraid of getting cancer. So it's all sort of in that place of fear about body or illness or sickness. But It could be that it was thunderstorms. It could be that it was dogs. It could be something that they saw on TV or they learned about. And so the worry just jumps into a different content 
but the process of it showing up and saying, this horrible thing can happen and you can't handle it. And oh no, let's imagine it and let's go catastrophic. That thing is the same. You know, what's a cool example of that in adults is that a lot of adults might be regular flyers because travel is part of their work. And then just one day they have a fear of flying. Mm -hmm. Yep. Because the content shifted to flying. Mm -hmm. But now their anxiety has latched on to flying. Yeah. Well, and you know what? It's interesting. That has come up several times over my years of practice. Somebody is kind of an anxious person, but they're not afraid to fly. They fly, they handle it, and then they have kids and they're getting on the plane. And the worry says, what happens now if you die in a plane crash? And suddenly they're looking at it from the perspective of being a parent that never existed before. And it grabs right on to flying. And it can do that with other things too. I've seen that happen many, many times. Yeah. What will happen if I'm on a plane and I die feels very different when you're a parent. They're just experiencing it. And the story that the worry tells them is a different story now because now it's a mommy story, not a I'm a 25-year-old single woman story or a single man story. One of my most shameful and embarrassing moments as a friend, one of my dear friends is afraid to fly. I've flown almost a million miles and she has probably twice. And yet she's like not into flying. And we were flying somewhere together and she started having a flying panic attack. Mm -hmm. I was the last person she should have been sitting next to. <laughs> I, I, to this day, I still feel badly about it. It was before we did this podcast where I feel like if it, I'm like, can we do a do over? Because now I know what I would say to you to be helpful in the moment. Yeah. And I did not know how to be helpful at all. And I was so like, you've got to get yourself together. Like I was so like scoldy <laughs> and you know, I was terrible. And if you're listening, I still feel really bad about this. I work in travel and actually the number of people who have a fear of flying, who are travel writers or other people who have like, who clearly need to be on planes all the time. Mm -hmm. They live with this and I think they... I think they medicate themselves as oh, their strategy. Yes. Sure. You take that little benzo and turn off your amygdala and you're good to go. Yeah. You drink some alcohol. People self-medicate all the time to get on planes. I've never had a, a fear of flying. Have you? No. Mm -mm. And I've had some crazy flying experiences. I was flying once from Martha's Vineyard into Logan and they had canceled. The ferries weren't running because the wind was so bad. And they were like, well, let's see when the pilot gets here, she'll decide whether or not she wants to fly back. And we were like, okay. So we got on the plane and she was like, all right, fasten your seatbelts really tight and just hang on. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God. She took her ponytail out and redid her ponytail, like redid her ponytail in this like really, like it was like really flex move. Like she takes out her ponytail and she just like tightens her ponytail and she's like, here we go. And I was like, oh my God. Yeah. The guy behind me, it was like a four seater. The guy behind me had his hands on my seat, like up close to me. And at one point, and I wasn't really nervous. And at one point I was just like patting his hand. <laughs> it was so bad, but it was fine. We survived. Yeah. Wow. I've, I've not had anything like that. I've been on an emergency landing at an airport. Yeah, it was. Yeah. I've been on a few, a few doozies. And I've also been on planes where I know somebody is having a panic attack they'll say like, is there a doctor here? And I'm thinking like, all right, the gastroenterologist is not really probably the person you want. I'm the person you want. And then I'm like, right. do I say something? Yeah. On that infamous flight with my friend, 
The captain announces upcoming turbulence. Bing! The little button with the flight attendant comes on. And then I get a tap on my shoulder from a flight attendant. Um, your friend in 12D needs you right now. <laughs> so it was like this perfect sequence of events. <laughs> Tell her I said she needs to grow up. Oh, I don't boy. I don't know if I got that mean. This stuff is tricky. It's tricky. Yeah. I've been on plenty of planes with people who are anxious and I, I observe them and I watch them and sometimes I help. There was one little kid that I helped once. She was flying by herself with her older brother in line. I saw that there was going to be a problem. So I just said to the flight attendant, can we rearrange the seats so that I sit with them? Because I think I can be of help. And then what happened? You know, we just, we took the flight. We played the alphabet game with Harry Potter. My boys were on the flight too. I talked to her a little bit about worry and we got through the flight and we landed and she got off the plane and she got brought to her mom and she said to her mom, this lady helped me. I was so scared. This lady helped me. And the mom just sort of looked at me, like gave me this like <laughs> side eye and then just walked away. Like she didn't even say thank you. She had no idea who she, she was talking no to. She had no idea. Yeah. Google How me. <laughs> yeah. Google me. <laughs> I did not need recognition. It was very sweet. It was, I felt enormously helpful, which as a therapist, we like that feeling. So yeah, it was good. So join the Facebook group so that you can ask Lynn your question on an upcoming episode. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Fluster Clucks. Bye, Robin. Bye, Lynn. Feel like you're the martyr in your family? You're not alone. Hey, this is Joanne. And Brie. And we're from the No Guilt Mom podcast. Brie, we talk to a lot of moms. Yeah, we sure do. And if you're a mom who has a to-do list that is so massive that you get overwhelmed and you shut down. Or if you fall into the habit of doing everything for everyone and don't know how to change it, we can help you become a no guilt mom. We're going to take you from family martyr to family model. That's role model so that you role model the behavior that you want to see out of your kids. You're going to go from being tired and overwhelmed to energized and guilt free. Every week, you'll get actionable strategies that you can implement right away from the experts that we interview and from us. We also have a whole lot of fun. So check out the No Guilt Mom podcast everywhere you listen to your favorite shows.